Welcome to Across the Desk and our new series in partnership with CASDA, the Canadian Autism Spectrum Disorders Alliance. This series is focused on the National Autism Strategy. We hope you'll join the conversation about how this strategy can help autistic Canadians have full and equitable access to the resources they need to live a full life. The time to have this conversation is now. everybody and welcome to Across the Desk. My name is Elizabeth Plouffe and I'm the host of the Across the Desk podcast. We are continuing today with our new series with CASDA, which is the Canadian Autism Spectrum Disorders Alliance. And that podcast series is under the banner Connect, Inform, Act and Sustain. And I am super excited to welcome Brittany Finley uh, to the podcast today. And Brittany's going to have to remember that this is a podcast and she has to say hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, it's funny because when people do their first podcast, because we're on Zoom, so background for everybody, Brittany can see me and we, you know, everybody kind of, um, you think it's video so people can see you nodding or see you whatever. And I have to remind my business partner that I do a podcast with that people can't see her when they're listening. <laughs> Common thing. Uh, so we're here today to discuss the affordability and access uh, portion of the National Autism Strategy. And Brittany is part of a program. She's a research associate at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, which I had the pleasure of visiting. How long has COVID been going on now for? 600 years? Oh, it feels like a, a lifetime at this point, for sure. Yeah, so very, very pre-COVID, about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I had the, the privilege of visiting the University of Calgary. It's a gorgeous campus. It really is. Yeah, it's fairly new and it's it's really nice and a great location downtown. So I love working there. Can't complain for a job, right? Yep. Um, so Brittany's research focuses on aiming to understand the design and delivery of disability policy across Canada and to determine whether current policy is meeting the needs of individuals with disabilities. Now, as we talked about before, Brittany, this is a topic very close to my heart. Um, so I have a 22-year-old son on the spectrum and navigating the whole disability landscape is super fun times. Um, so great to know that this is being taken seriously. Yeah, no, it's, I've, I've heard from lots of families, um, their difficulties navigating the system. And it's, it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I, I just love the families that I talk to and any way that we can help uh, make the system just a little bit easier for them is that's really our aim um, at the School of Public Policy and also through the the CASTA Fellowship. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved with CASTA and how this came to be informing the National Autism Strategy. Yeah, so um, CASTA actually partnered with uh, Kids Brain Health Network, which is a national research network um, across Canada, and they put out an open call for um, to apply to be a CASTA KBHN Policy Fellow. Um, and I applied in, I believe it was uh, January 2020 was when the applications went in. And I was very fortunate enough to be selected. Um, and I chose to focus on the affordability and access area of the CASDA blueprint document. Um, and through this opportunity, I ran um, along with my co-chair, Brooke Pinsky, who's a CASDA board member, um, several working group consultation meetings with um, a variety of different individuals with um, professional as well as personal lived experience um, with the autism community. And we uh, came up with a bunch of recommendations for the federal government to try to make um, to address the issues relating to affordability and access that autistic Canadians experience. Um, so it's been an incredible opportunity and uh, I've really enjoyed my time working with CASDA on this uh, endeavor. Excellent. And Brooke is with the Autism Society in Alberta. Um, and yes. I know it's it's a rather intriguing thing because I know CASDA, and, and this is a common conversation topic, has you know sort of struggled to make sure that the autistic community understands how heavily involved autistic Canadians are involved with CASDA. Um, this is not something that's being forced upon autistic individuals. This is being created in conjunction with an input from not only autistics, you know, associations and societies, but autistic individuals. So that's very cool that we've got this broad representation of, of influence within this policy development. Um, so for today, 
this is kind of an interesting thing because most people don't realize that we're only in the third generation, third to fourth generation of autistic Canadians really being taken notice of. Um, it, you know, autism flew under the radar across the globe for a very long time, but this is only the third generation of folks who are actively seeking independence and employment and um, equality in access to services and what have you. So it's, it's amazing to see official policy and, and data being collected and informed so that it's useful versus kind of ad hoc. Yeah, so yeah absolutely. It's sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, 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 you go ahead. It's all good. No, I was just going to say, it's great to see, um, it's great to see some policy in this area. And it's great to see, um, in addition, the conversation, the unification across the country of um, autistic voices, you know, coming together for the CASA series, but also for the um, National Autism Assessment that is ongoing by the um, Canadian Academy of Health Sciences. Um, it's great that there's so much attention being brought to this area. And it's, it's a really positive forward. Yes. <laughs> Finally, having been in the um, autism community now for 22 years, I can assure you that when we first got the diagnosis, it was so hard, like trying to navigate policy, trying to navigate programs. Um, you know, we talked briefly about, we applied for the disability benefit, for an example, and two physicians said, basically, no, your son's not autistic enough. <laughs> like, I'm sorry, did I miss a trick here? <laughs> like, yeah, and that's shockingly um, common. I've heard that phrase not autistic enough a lot in my conversations um, through my work. And it's just, it's baffling because these individuals, in some cases, they just need a little bit of support to help yep. them, you know, function in society to the same extent of other individuals. And it's just, it's, it's, it shocks me really that that phrase exists in, uh, in our society. It, just, it was, so that's, yeah. that's kind of, this is a, a topic near and dear to my heart because, um, when you're a parent struggling through that, you just, you don't know where else to turn or what's happening. So it's, it's awesome that, you know, the school of public policy, CASDA, the kids brain health network all recognize how challenging this is and, and that there needs to be more information around it. So we have some main issues to discuss throughout this podcast, and we're going to kick off with the inconsistent ability of autistic individuals to access existing federal programs. Look how timely that was. <laughs> so good lead in. Um, so, <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about how that's being addressed. Yeah, so um, just to kind of build on that a little bit, some work that's actually come out, um, it was a few years ago now, but by my colleagues at the School of Public Policy looked at uptake rates of the disability tax credit across the country among adults. Um, and their work showed uh, kind of the take home points is that it's relatively low across the country. It varies province to province, but the average was around 40% of um, working age adults, which that would be eligible for the disability tax credit. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's definitely an issue. Um, another thing that um, data that's been published has shown that the rates of rejection for the disability tax credit have also been steadily increasing over the past few years. So it's it's hard. It's, even if you you know take the steps to apply for this credit, you might end up being rejected, which is just a frustrating process because then you have to go back and reapply or you have to appeal that decision. And, and it's ultimately, not a, it's not a short process, folks. It's not a no. it's not an itty bitty process. It's quite a bit of paperwork. <laughs> Yes, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of going back and forth to doctors. It's a lot of back and forth with the Canada Revenue Agency. It's a lot of work. Um, so it's I it's very frustrating for individuals, and it it ultimately precludes them from getting the support that they need, which is the biggest issue overall. Yeah. So the low yeah. uptake there. So the the second point that um, we're going to be discussing is the financial support within existing federal programs is often inadequate. Oh, sing it. <laughs> Sing the truth because it is. Yes. Keep you go because you're the professional. You're the subject matter <laughs> expert. I'm just the frustrated parent who has been on the receiving end of squat. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm frustrated alongside you. Not, I don't. I'm not a parent, but I I can totally empathize with your frustrations. And I think the issue, the main issue that um, came up over and over again was yes, there's these supports in place, but they don't seem to address the actual cost. They don't need seem to understand what people are spending on an annual basis to support someone, um, support an autistic individual or for autistic individuals to support themselves. Right. So, 
you know, some support or some estimates support or suggest, sorry, that supports for autistic individuals can vary in costs from around $26,000 to $130,000 a year. Yeah. And the tax credits that are in place, just they don't do enough to help nope. offset the cost. So it's a lot of pocket costs for families, which is a huge financial burden. And it's um, it's definitely something that needs to be addressed through policy. We're better now. So a lot of this, of course, when you initially, and, and if there's any parents listening, I'm sure that you're going to be going, uh-huh, and nodding your head just like I am. It was that initial investigation because it was brought to our attention when Thomas was two in nursery school that something just wasn't flying quite right. And so we began accessing, accessing local resources and, you know, going through the Children's Assessment and Treatment Center, which I think is now called The Rock and, and what have you here. And I'm in Burlington in Ontario. Um, and that was no cost to us, thank goodness, right? So that was fine. And then we started navigating a little bit deeper because, of course, as your child ages, more and more things start coming to light, which, you know, according to a very helpful developmental pediatrician, well, it was always there. It's just basically, you know, coming out now and we're like, fantastic. It's good. To <laughs> so then we started the whole psychoeducational, uh, psychoeducational assessment route. We had to do that. And then we had to do other evaluations through the developmental pediatrician. Um, we had to end up getting speech assessments done and hearing assessments done. And because what you're doing is going through the process of eliminating whether it is a physiological cause of certain behaviors or is it autism, right? So in our case, um, it appeared to teachers that Thomas couldn't hear them when in fact he was just <laughs> tuning them out. But you have to go through all, and that was all, you know, partly out of pocket, partly through my husband and mine's benefit packages and, and families without that coverage. This is not cheap. No, it is not cheap at all. It's no. uh, it's a huge burden, and it's it's difficult because for what I hear from a lot of parents is they're just they just they just want to provide support for their kids, and it's a matter of prioritizing. You know, this month we yep. can do this, and this month we can do that, and or you just can't. Exactly, and it's it's heartbreaking because you know these kids need support. Well, it's all that from my perspective it's all of that potential that gets lost because if you can't speak to your child's strengths and if you don't yes. have anything on paper that chronicles your child's strengths and abilities and you know still details their challenges absolutely because we can't ignore that that's the reality so parents who can't afford this and there's no policy in place to support them properly all of that potential is lost on, with their child and their fight is 10 times harder because you see the potential, not rose-colored glasses potential, but the reality of potential in your kid. And then we have all these folks who can't grow up and, you know, from the government's perspective, contribute to taxes and contribute to other things. So like Senator Jim Munson said, you either pay now or you pay later. Absolutely. So yeah. And we, we hear, I've heard that before um, from families, that whole if they just had a little bit more support, they could pay taxes, they could work. And it's, it's so, it, it's kind of that exactly what you just said, that initial investment up front. it just has so many benefits for the individual, which is most important in the family, but also from a broad side. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Community-wide and Canada-wide. Um, and that's I'm telling you, just need to change this situation, Brittany. Yeah. <laughs> We're working on it. Right. Thank God. Um, and, and I mean, and I've, I've, I've benefited from the School of Public Policy. For those that may not know, the Pub School of Public Policy is through the University of Calgary, and they address a number of, of issues and, and do a lot of research and development. And the, the papers that are available through the School of Public Policy for public consumption are fantastic. Like I have done a ton of research through this portal and found an incredible amount of information that supports autism and employment, what that looks like, what the realities are, um, what are the strengths and deficits, all that kind of stuff. So if you are somebody who's interested in learning more about what the School of Public Policy has been working on and accomplished, if you visit policyschool.ca, um, a lot of this is public content and it is excellently done. Um, highly recommend you take a look. Point number three that we're going to be discussing is autistic individuals have inconsistent access to support services and professionals. 
Yeah, so we we really kind of broke this down into three different areas based on our consultations um, of what kind of the, the biggest issues were in this area. So the first being that professionals across sectors don't necessarily have the capacity to adequately interact with and provide services to autistic individuals. So this is within obviously the like kind of social services um, provision of services for autistic individuals, but it goes beyond that into education, into senior care, into justice. There's just a, an overall kind of lack of capacity to really be able to interact with these individuals um, and not inadvertently um, be harmful or just not understand how to get in touch with them properly. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the first issue we identified. Um, the second one being just the issue of long wait lists. Uh, this includes wait lists for diagnostic services as well as wait lists for programs themselves. So obviously these types of things vary province by province. Um, but we, we hear that all the time about how, yeah, I would love to get my child into X program, but I'm going to have to wait two years in order to even get there. So you're kind of missing this like essential um, time where you could um, provide support and provide services to help their development. Um, yeah, to grow that really. potential window. Absolutely. And um, the third thing that we heard um, is just a lack of mental health services for um, autistic individuals. Uh, lots of there's been um, quite a few surveys done in the past that have shown that quite if uh, like usually the majority of autistic individuals have some sort of um, co-occurring co-diagnosis co yeah absolutely so um, just making sure that sorry and they um, find that they're not always able to access the mental health supports that they need so that was kind of the three areas that came up um, when we were chatting with our working group of um, how autistic individuals, they, because they can't access these supports and services that they need consistently, it also precludes their ability to access society and to be involved and participate. Um, so that was that was what we came up with uh, with that issue. Well, you, you've got an interesting fact here, which is completely true. And it says here, a survey done in Ontario in 2017 indicated that 63% of parents surveyed did not think that their child's teacher knew enough about autism to support their learning. <laughs> so as a parent who has navigated nursery school, primary school, and um, high school, and college with an autistic child, I mean, he's not, he's a fantastic 22-year-old. My son is not to be, you know, that mom, but pretty freaking great. But it's a bit of a challenge. And um, we had some great teachers, don't get me wrong. So firmly grateful. I'm not slagging teachers by any stretch because our public school system is set up that the stress on teachers now is, is unforgivable and absolutely a lack of resources, the lack of support. So I understand why this happens, but we're back to Senator Jim Munson's statement of pay now, pay later. We either get teachers the appropriate amount of support so that they can adequately function in the classroom or we provide more special services support so that there are more EAs, more something. If we're going to go towards, you know, and continue to work on an integrated classroom situation to address not only academic needs, but social development needs and, and social relationships and what have you, we cannot continue to allow teachers to struggle the way we do. And there are teachers who, you know, working with kids with challenges is sort of like their superpower, um, which is amazing. But I had more than one conversation with a teacher to say, if he's too much for you, or you don't have the time, or you don't have this, like whatever it is, I totally respect that. I don't have time. I don't have his life to waste for you to figure it out. And I had that yes. conversation with more than one teacher. And again, teachers love you. I come from a long line of teachers. I've been a teacher myself. I get it but we need to fix this situation so that the teachers, I can't even imagine if, you know, come a teacher because you're born to teach and because you enjoy that process and not being able to engage properly with a kid, that's gotta be heartbreaking. Like, you know, you're failing, but there's nothing you can do because yeah, absolutely systems broken. It's just, it's so important to be equipping these prevent uh, professionals with the resources so that they can interact with these individuals. Um, I just, I think, because that's the thing with um, autistic individuals, there's so many systems that they touch in their lifetime. It's healthcare, it's education, it's justice potentially, like we all do. 
So every, all professionals should have an understanding of how to interact with them. Um, and it's, 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 you're completely right. It's not about, you know, blaming them per necessarily. No. It's more, we need to provide them with the resources. So they're equipped to, um, be able to handle this and not make it an additional burden on them to have absolutely. to learn that. not make it so yeah. hard. I have to tell you that Thomas's college experience was probably one of the more positive because Sheridan college that he went to had a ask, I think it's called ask for success department and they have trained autism advocates as counselors in that department. Um, and of course the ratio is much smaller than it is within the public school system. Um, so parents, we hear you and you have amazing people like Brittany who are working to make it better for you, which is great. Um, yeah, that's, that's a really important point. Just that, that advocacy piece on the parent side and it's so important, but it's, it's also not all parents can do that. You know, parents are burdened as well. So the 100%. system work better for people instead of people having to berate the system to give them what they need. Um, so yeah, it can become contentious because you just get so yeah. frustrated and you don't want the teachers to feel attacked. But when you are having to advocate for your child, as you mentioned, valid point, you're not only like the, what the teachers need to realize is that you're not only having to advocate for your child within the school system, you're also having to advocate within the healthcare system. You're also having to advocate within the mental health care system. You're also having to add, navigate and advocate within a variety of other support systems for, you know, extracurricular activities and what have you. It's not just that one conversation with that teacher. It's the 600th conversation that you've had to advocate for your kid. And I, yes. your ability to be constructive in certain situations can become somewhat diminished. You are probably number 642 <laughs> of the conversations they've had to navigate on behalf of their kid. Yeah, uh, so absolutely. Point number four in the brief to discuss is the lack of consistency in service provision across Canada and the challenges with provincial territorial disability programs. Uh, that intrigues me. So I'm again, you're the expert. So I'm going to leave that to you to <laughs> blow up a bit there. Yeah. So we, um, I mean, the, I guess I'll start by saying that our briefs were really focused on providing recommendations for the federal government. So obviously programs provided at the provincial and territorial level, a level, there's some flexibility there for the provinces to um, provide them as they see fit and as they see fit for their um, the population. So the federal government can't really go in and say, you need to provide this, you need to provide this. That's, that's not how our system works in Canada. Um, but we did want to provide um, kind of some action items for the federal government to take maybe a leadership role in convening a first minister's meeting where, um, you know, ministers from the various provinces and territories in certain areas. So it could be the premiers, it could be the ministers of health, ministers of um, community and social services, or the equivalent um, in different provinces, really come together and kind of discuss some of the issues. So, you know, there's, we uh, provided kind of a bunch of different suggestions for things that could be talked about at this meeting um, to improve the consistency of service provision across Canada, um, and also to make sure that the programs that are being provided are adequately um, supporting individuals. Um, a lot of the bulk of um, service uh, support that autistic individuals receive does come from the provincial and territorial levels. So when we're talking about affordability and access, it's really, it's hard to ignore that whole um, sphere of influence that the provinces and territories have. And the provinces and territories, and then if you break it down, um, break it down again to the regional level. Um, so you're yes. not just navigating the provincial services, you're also navigating at a regional and then community level. So it's a, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> so, yes, it is a lot. <laughs> um, so that, I, I think consistency is one of the key things that as an autism parent, um, I would love to see for sure. I mean, we're, we're out of the, the weeds as it were, but when you're in the weeds, not knowing which department, which level, which whatever to go to to get help um, is challenging. So it's fantastic to know that there are recommendations in place to help make that easier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely challenges um, provincially in terms of consistency, just 
the specific regions that you're in, you know, like urban rural divide, there's a lack of services in a lot of cases in rural areas, which is a, which is a huge challenge. It's such an extra burden onto families that have to drive several hours to get the services they need. Um, and additionally, the other big issue that came up was um, that a diagnosis in one province doesn't necessarily transfer over to another province. So really? people move. Yeah, we've, we've heard um, issues where people will move and they try to get autism services and the province will say, you have to go through the whole assessment process again the diagnosis from your home province. So that's a whole burden as well, because you know, you've already been through this process, you're already getting supports and all of that stops if you have to move for whatever reason. And then you have to go through the process all over again. So it's just, it's frustrating for families and it, it, it causes this break in support and it's such a problem that, that needs to be addressed. I just can't even imagine like that's, I am so glad you're working on this because I didn't even know that that was a thing. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, really. Nobody should have to go through, you know, the pain of reevaluation when you've already gone through it. It's not, to get your child diagnosed with autism, for those of you that may not know, is not an easy process. And it can be lengthy. It took us two years um, of meeting with a developmental pediatrician on a regular basis because Thomas's... Um, my son's version of, of, of autism, uh, Asperger's syndrome, which I know is a controversial term, but that's all I know. Um, he was extremely functional in certain aspects that made it challenging for them to diagnose. So it's not, it's not an easy process. And unless it's really blatant, um, it, it, it can be a, a difficult thing to do. So that's crazy that um, they'd make you do that all again. <laughs> Yes. <sighs> That's not okay. So no. there's five main goals of the five briefs um, that have very specific uh, outcomes that are attached to them. So if we can go through, the first is modified design and increase awareness of federal disability tax measures, such as medical expense tax credit, child care expenses deduction, and disability support deduction to enhance financial support they provide. Can we put that into English? Yes, we absolutely can. So the first thing I want to mention really quick is um, the Disability Advisory Committee put out a report on um, disability tax measures in 2019, and they have a lot of fantastic recommendations that um, we totally support at um, the, the CASDA Affordability and Access Working Group. Um, so definitely, it's a long document, but the recommendations are great, and um, I would totally recommend that you check that out. Um, so when we're looking at the disability tax measures, so as we kind of mentioned when we were talking about the issues, they're just, the way that they're designed don't really address the costs that individuals are facing when they're trying to support an autistic individual or if they're an autistic individual themselves. Mm -hmm. So what we are proposing is one of two things, either to increase the maximum amount that individuals can claim on their taxes. So just increase that, that threshold so they can be claiming more expenses and be getting more back up on their taxes. Or the other option would be to expand what could be claimed. So instead of saying you have to buy this specific brand of whatever support you need, or you have to go to this specific doctor, just allow any supports that are needed to be covered. Um, and then that will enhance the ability of people to get money back um, on the expenses uh, that and they And continue have. to invest in their child. Absolutely. Um, and then also the, the other important piece with that is just raising awareness. So the other thing is um, a lot, some people don't even know that half of these programs exist. And so it's just being able to communicate that as early on in the process as possible. Like even right as you get the diagnosis, like here's a list of everything that you could apply for, you could be eligible for. That's really important so that they're able to try to apply for things earlier on. So no, yeah. Um, so reform the disability tax credit recommendations include replacing the T2201 form that hurt my head just saying it and <laughs> the number of practitioners that can fill out the form reduce the need for autistic individuals to reapply for the DTC and DTC stands for disability tax credit. Yes, making sure okay you think I would put that together faster but you know. Um, it's all good and make the DTC refundable. So what's is there a little more to that or 
For sure. So um, I'll, I'll go through each point and just add a little bit of extra yeah, context. Absolutely. The, um, the, the T2201 form, there's lots of problems with it. It's hard for people to understand the amount of doctors that, you know, they get the form from parents and they're like, I don't even know where to start with this is a problem. Like doctors, it kind of what we were talking about earlier with teachers, they also have to be equipped with that knowledge and they need a form that's easy for them to understand. Mm -hmm. They're busy people too. Um, the other issue is it's easier for individuals usually with um, physical disabilities to um, apply for the disability tax credit just because the form is not necessarily set up to really capture the challenges associated with autism. So what we're recommending is just to change that form so that it's easier for doctors to fill it out, for parents to fill it out, and also for um, autistic individuals to be able to explain why they need the disability tax credit, explain their challenges um, in, a, in a way that you can't really with the current form. Um, and then when we're looking at um, expanding the number of medical practitioners, um, essentially, uh, currently medical doctors can fill out um, all sections of the, the application form, um, but psychologists can only fill out the mental function sections. Um, in some cases, the psychologist might be better equipped to fill out all the sections, but they're not able to do that. So mm -hmm. what that means is individuals kind of have to shuffle between different professionals, then they have to re-explain why they want to apply. They might have to talk to a medical professional that doesn't know their child as well. Um, so just kind of expanding that so that they're able to fill out the whole form will make the process a lot easier for uh, autistic individuals and their families. The third point is just recognizing that autism is a lifelong condition and reducing the number of times that are needed to apply. Mm -hmm. um, very inconsistent. <laughs> um, when autistic individuals need to reapply. So I've heard things where, you know, they've gotten the disability tax credit and said, I have it for life. I've heard other things where they get the disability tax credit and they have it for three years and they have to reapply. So just having more consistency in that process and being more transparent, if, if they do think that you need to reapply, having, knowing well in advance when that needs to happen is so important so that the access to that credit isn't interrupted. Um, at magical age of 18 that everything seems to go sideways. And I was at a conference, I was at the casting, it was actually the first casting conference and they kept going on about, um, well, our program stops at 18. Well, this stops at 18. And I turned to the woman sitting with me who was there as a parent advocate. And I said, you say your son was 24. And she said, yeah, I'm like, my son is 20. Did you know they're not autistic anymore? Because <laughs> apparently at 18, magical, it just magically goes away. <laughs> yeah. I'm here. Yeah, to that transition I have piece. Never seen it spontaneously stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just putting it out there. Yeah, it's uh that's certainly a huge problem. That that transition age where just everything stops and then it's setting everything up again. It's just it's uh, unpleasant. It's, yeah. It's unpleasant. Um absolutely. And then the the last thing to touch on with display tax credit is so currently the display tax credit is what we call non-refundable. So basically what it does is it decreases the taxes you have to pay to zero, um, which is great for some people, but if you're at lower income, you're you usually don't have to pay taxes anyway. So if it was refundable, which is what we're proposing, if your um, if the credit value is larger than the taxes you have to pay, you would actually get some of that money back. So it's more, it's more beneficial to people that are lower income because they'll actually get money back instead of just having to pay no taxes, which they wouldn't have to pay anyway. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, those are kind of, there, there's lots, uh, lots of groups talking about the disability tax credit. I think there's, it's a, it's a great idea of a program, but there's just a lot of changes that could make it even better and could really help um, support uh, autistic individuals and other individuals with disabilities uh, across the country. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, we're going to go to point number three here, which is improve access to society more broadly for autistic Canadians by training professionals across sectors to be able to effectively interact with and provide services to autistic individuals, strengthening commitment to providing mental health services and aiming to reduce wait lists for autism programs. Yeah, so um, <laughs> ready. Um, yeah, so our, our first uh, recommendation in this area is to, as we were talking about earlier about equipping professionals with the resources they need, 
uh, is to develop a comprehensive training program for professionals in a wide range of sectors. Um, so this could involve, you know, funding researchers or um, the two and frontline workers to come up with training programs that, that we can then scale across the country. There's there's lots of different ways to do this, but kind of the take home point is to say there needs to be more um, information for professionals so that they're able to interact with autistic individuals um, adequately and, and with respect. Um, the second is to just enhance um, mental health support for autistic individuals. There's actually a strategic autism spectrum disorder fund, um, which is funding community-based um, programs in several provinces, which some of which um, do provide mental health support to autistic Canadians. We think this is a great start and we would love for more of these types of initiatives to happen, to be funding things at the community level, um, and then try to scale them across the country so that all um, autistic Canadians can have access to the mental health supports that they need. Mm -hmm. um, third, just it, trying to introduce a, a um, national autism waitlist reduction initiative. Um, there's, uh, we, we put a few recommendations in our report based on the healthcare waitlist reduction um, in the 10-year plan to strengthen healthcare, which um, came out quite a few years ago now. Um, but they have a few important points in there that would be helpful to reduce waitlists. So, um, you know, monitoring waitlists, just having data on like, how long are people waiting? Having that, it would just be so helpful mm -hmm. to know where to um, direct resources to help decrease waitlists. Um, and then also having targets, you know, how long do we think people should wait? How do we address this? Where do we need to mobilize professionals to make these wait lists more manageable? Mm -hmm. um, so just really overall kind of that brief is just to improve access to all elements of society so that autistic individuals can participate and they have that um, equality to everyone else in society. Well, quality and, and contribution, right? Because I mean, I think Absolutely. everybody fundamentally feels more value when they're able to contribute in whatever way is possible um, to the betterment of society. So when we don't make that opportunity available, we're then, you know, continuing the cycle of negative mental health. So yes, absolutely. Senator Jim Munson, pay now, pay later. <laughs> <laughs> he had it right. He did. Uh, I tell you, that man. So for those of you not in the know, it was um, Senator Jim Munson is um, a huge supporter of CASDA. And it, it was because of his report, Pay Now, Pay Later, that this initiative began. And he has been pivotal in um, keeping these issues in front of the government, um, whoever's in control of it. And we are fortunate that Senator Munson uh, attends the CASDA leadership summits and, and supports them. Uh, we also have MP Mike Lake. Um, and a few other senators that are, are heavily involved. And we're grateful for that support because we need their voices and their abilities to get in front of the government. Uh, and it was last year, she says questioningly, that the <laughs> National Autism, I'm sorry, but the years are sort of melding together at this point. Yeah, I can't, it's like post-COVID and pre-COVID for me at this point. Like I, I can't- it's Like a zombie apocalypse, right? Like did I get bit <laughs> yeah. before or after? Um, <laughs> I guess so I believe it was last year. So I want to say last year with 20, I know it was 2019 that the national autism strategy got in front of um, prime minister Trudeau and was, you know, brought to the forefront of, of becoming a priority for the government to take action on it. So we're getting there. Um, yes. Number four, list action items for future ministers meetings, which reflect key opportunities for change at the provincial territorial level. Yeah, so I think I think we touched on this a little bit previously, but just we listed a bunch of um, issues and concerns and opportunities for change that came up um, while we were consulting with individuals. So um, as we mentioned, just being able to take your diagnosis across the country would be great if the provinces could work together on that. Um, you know, looking at disability assistance programs, evaluating whether those are adequately first incentivizing work and, and individuals that can work while also being an adequate support for individuals that can't. Mm -hmm. um, and also looking at um, education systems, which we've talked about quite a bit already, but um, just making sure that teachers have that capacity to um, support their autistic students um, as they're in the school system. I'd be intrigued to know how much um, 
you know, special needs, disabilities, autism is part of a teacher's training. Um, I have no idea what that training looks like, but if you're going through four years of university to become a teacher, there's got to be a spot in there somewhere, <laughs> preferably yeah. towards the end of the training. So it gets remembered <laughs> that could fit in and you have a semester of this. Um, so that would school of public policy, take that one up. There you go. New project for you. Excellent. <laughs> Just, you know, putting it out there. So yeah. number five, expand early intervention services across Canada to ensure that children are able to get support prior to receiving a formal diagnosis, uh, formal autism diagnosis. We were fortunate. Um, when Thomas was in nursery school, we had an incredible teacher, Mary Heathcote. And she just came up to us and she said, you know, something's just not right. Um, he's, and, and she pointed out a couple of things and she was pivotal. It was, it was her being brave enough to have that conversation with us as parents and, and having the understanding of, you know, milestones and what have you, and getting us involved with uh, the Children's Assessment and Treatment Center, now The Rock, that began us on our journey. Without Mary's intervention and bringing it to our attention, I, I don't know how long it would have taken. Um, and I credit her repeatedly. She unfortunately passed away last year. Um, and I went to see her before she passed away. And I said, you saved my son's life. Yeah. Yeah. That's her, her so doing critical. that was incredible. Um, so, you know, again, to teachers, if you are ever hesitating, bringing up something that you see in somebody's kid who it's, it's just not quite right, please don't hesitate. Um, it makes a massive difference. And if it turns out to be wrong, that's okay. But when it turns out to be right, it is life-changing. And, and that's what these policies and the National Autism Strategy and the School of Public Policy and the Kids Brain Health Network, that's what they're all looking to build on is those early interventions that allow for that growth of opportunity and potential you know, in our autistic population and it's what they deserve. It's what yeah. we're all here to help make happen. So with that expansion on the early intervention, what's that looking like from, from this policy's perspective? Yeah, so um, there, an, an individual actually on my working group is, was working on a, a research study um, to uh, implement a program for early intervention. Um, so she really, she wrote this brief, she really owned it. Um, and we ended up putting it in kind of as a as an addendum to the brief about um, the changes at the provincial level, because this is another one that would need to happen at the provincial territorial level. Mm -hmm. But it's it's about it's what you said, you know, kind of recognizing things early on, making sure that support can be provided before a diagnosis, um, and then also just tracking um, outcomes, tracking data, like understanding where. Um, how things are going and then evaluating as you go and changing things to make sure oh, that individuals are being supported. That is an extremely valid point. And I think it's that flexibility and adaptability on behalf of the service providers and the people engaging with your child that makes all the difference. And that again, going back to that support that teachers and service providers need. So yes. the more, you know, the more policy and procedure we have in understanding and making sure that the resources are there, the bigger that pathway gets and the more successful, you know, individuals can become whatever that is. I'm, you know, everybody has their own definition of success, but that's, that's the point of the national autism strategy. That is the point around, you know, organizations like the, the school of public policy. That is the point of the kids brain health network is to make that path to success as open as possible for as many individuals as possible. And it's why we have these conversations. It's why we're here discussing the policy. It's why we're bringing on subject matter experts like Brittany, so that people across Canada can gain a better understanding of what's happening. You know, for parents who are listening and struggling, know that you have advocates and champions on your side that are working to make it better you know, trying to show the government that it's better to be proactive than reactive. Um, and the policies that were put in place 30 years ago don't apply anymore. That adaptability and flexibility has to be not only at a, 
a parental level and a school level and a provincial level. And it has to be at a government level in understanding that policies that were put into place in the 80s don't work anymore. Policies that were put in place in the 90s don't necessarily work anymore. We're now in 2021. Um, uh, we have to keep up with what's happening. We have to keep up with technology and how it's now available to improve the lives of those who are in rural areas and can't necessarily access uh, services. The understanding of, of how we can make uh, life easier for parents, autistic individuals, service providers, and just smooth the road. Smooth the road, people. Yes, yes, that, that was a great summary. Thank you so much for that. That was perfect. It's beautiful. <laughs> um, so the briefs that are available, this is the amazing thing about being involved with CASDA. So I, I'm a member of CASDA. Um, and, and again, as a parent, um, why would I not be? And CASDA's main goal is to improve the lives of Canadians who are living with autism and to create as many opportunities as possible for autistic individuals. To that end, the people who are around supporting autistic individuals can access an incredible amount of resources on the CASDA site. If you visit casda.ca, um, there is a section, I just have to go to the website, one second, um, called Our Work. And within that is the policy compendium, the National Autism Strategy, and, and multiple other resources. Um, there's publications and resources, there's video content, ooh, there's podcasts. Um, <laughs> the Autism Language Guide, Disability Data Coordination Surveys. Um, there's so many projects going on. We've had Vanessa Tomas and Stephanie Cote on talking about the Autism and Employment Projects. We have a housing podcast coming up. Um, go take a look. No, we're not asking yes. you to join or convert or whatever, but <laughs> there's an incredible amount of information out there. And when you are managing your kid's diagnosis, you want it to be as easy as possible and information is power. So, yes, absolutely. And that's what you're, but that's what you guys are doing is not only are you creating new information that responsibly informs policy development, but you're also making it understandable and approachable for folks who aren't running in policy creation. Um, and that's what's key. The more you understand about what's available for your child, the better you can advocate and the more successful your kid can be. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. Well, became, wouldn't it be awkward if you were like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> oh, good point, but no. <laughs> so, uh, so to wrap up everybody, um, we've been chatting with Brittany Finley, who is part of the affordability and access for the national autism strategy through the school of public policy at the university of Calgary. Um, and that is through the, um, the research fellowship. I'm calling that's wrong. Research fellowship. Yeah. Uh, policy. Policy. Yeah. Thank you. I know yeah. I was doing, there was a wrong word in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's teams like these that are, are changing what's happening for the autism community, which is incredible. Um, I don't know. Is there anything else you'd like to share, Brittany? No, just thank you so much for having me. This has been so fun. It, it is my first podcast. So okay. I, uh, I was pretty nervous. So this has been really fun. <laughs> I didn't scare you off. Well, there is one thing that we didn't do ahead of time. That weird echo again. Oh, welcome to technology. Oh no. I know now you should be a little scared. Um, Jonathan was. So <laughs> is there something, so here's, a, I'll give you a, a little thing. So we're adding the, the human component to, you know, what CAST is doing as far as the incredibly hardworking team members, the advocates and the policy developers and the research people and whatever. So if there was one thing that you wanted to share that people might not know about you or think, right? So when people meet me, the last thing they would think, right? So, you know, age and woman and all the rest of it, I'm a massive Marvel freak. I love, right? See, Brittany's doing the face. Yeah. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> you know, like truth, if anybody ever watches the video. Now I did go a little DC, but right? Oh, amazing. So I have my little action figures and whatever. I just really enjoy superhero movies. 
um, I, we had, uh, I think it was Vanessa on and, and she went fishing for piranha in the Amazon and oh. right. Like who does that? That's crazy. Um, <laughs> Jonathan Lai likes to cook, but he doesn't cook the same thing twice. Oh, interesting. Right. And he cooks while he listens to jazz. So if you were to share something along that lines, what can you think of that you might want to, or have we put wow, you Wow, these are, these are hard pressure. examples to live up to. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing I can think of off the top of my head, people usually don't expect this to me, but I'm a huge hockey fan. Um, not, well, you're Canadian though. I am Canadian, but uh, no, people, I, I love, I love the Flames. Unfortunately, um, they disappoint me year after year, but for some reason I keep cheering for them. Um, so that's been, it's been fun to watch them a little bit during this lockdown, but, uh, I wish I had more fun stories, but, uh, See, we forgot I, to do it ahead of time, but, <laughs> no, but, but that's a good one. Right. I, I, you know, I'm ashamed yeah. to admit I am not a hockey fan. I yeah. just, you know, I'm not a true, I'm born in Montreal. You think I would, <laughs> but, uh, I, I know little to know. So when you say the university or the, the Calgary flames, you know, I'm like, I'm nodding knowledgeably. I'm like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll believe you. Sure. That sounds good. <laughs> You're the pro. I will take your word for it. Um, so there you go. So Brittany's a hockey fan. I'm a Marvel fan. There's, uh, there's all kinds of different people working on making life better for autistic Canadians. And we've all got diverse interests and diverse talents. And we're bringing those to the table to improve life for, uh, you know, autistic Canadians um, in our whole country. Um, so yeah. know that there are people on your side, know that people are trying their best. We would love to hear from you. Uh, if you want to leave comments or, you know, get in touch, um, you can info at casda.ca in order to learn more about what CASDA is doing to improve the lives of autistic Canadians. Um, my website is spirocareerscanada.ca. I'm a technology founder who's building an online platform to help connect autistic Canadians to autistic specific employment resources. So there's lots of us doing our bit as best we can. Um, and that's it for today. So yeah, Brittany's going to stay on for a couple of minutes, but to everybody else, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and we will be back I have to be honest with you, the schedule's changed. So I'm not sure who's next, <laughs> but <laughs> more topics to come on, on CASDA and the National Autism Strategy and, and hopefully how we're making things better. So thank you for joining yeah, me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We'll talk to you soon, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining the conversation about the National Autism Strategy. CASDA is a comprehensive network of autistic Canadians and autism-focused organizations. Our members are united by the shared vision that a national autism strategy will create improvements in the lives of autistic people for generations to come. Please visit casda.ca to learn more and keep the conversation going.